0: Horrid pace, if you will. Um, so last week, we went ahead and we looked a little bit of this continued, which is one of the things I love most about Paul, is Paul puts emotion, he puts feeling, he puts his heart with the letters that he's writing. You know, he's not just completely devoid of any, um, he's not detached from any relationship with these people, but it is clear how much love it is that he has for them. And in verses 7 and 8, he, he said that he has them in his heart. He has them in the very core of his being. He has this church in Philippi, these other Christians, at the very core of who he is. And then he talked about the defense or confirmation of the gospel in which they too were partakers of. And in verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all. In the bowels of Christ, and we saw that he had this feeling inside, this deep understanding, this deep emotional longing to be with other believers, specifically these believers here, being with the Philippians and those that are in the church in Philippi. And many of us understand this sense of longing, where in our in our stomach, in our bodies, we feel. This great anxiety or this great longing to be with someone. Maybe it's a friend or family member we have not seen for a long time. We feel it internally. There's something that happens that our bodies react to the context that we are in. Um, And I found out last week I was the only one that ever um, had a heart change. Whenever you see, you'd see someone like you see who's going to be your wife. You know, you look upon uh, your wife or that really cute girl that you have a crush on or the cute boy, maybe the guys, maybe I'm the only man. So let's. Well, we're going to speak to the ladies here, okay? Where are all the ladies at? Never thought I'd say that in a sermon, okay? So the idea of you see someone, you crush someone that you really think is really cute and your heart starts to beat a little differently, okay? Our bodies physically react, respond two different longings that we have and we understand it. The idea of we're, we're anxious, we're nervous, whatever the case is, our lungs tighten up, we're, we're, it's harder for us to catch breath. We know that we have these responses to different circumstances. And Paul is making it clear how greatly he longs after these individuals, others in the church, because he understands what it is. He understands the beauty of the fellowship of the church. And so then we enter in here, going to close out this section uh, this morning of verses 9 through 11. He says, In this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Gracious God and and Father, we come before you today to ask that you would clearly show yourself to us through your word. We rest confidently in the promises that you you have given us through your word, the promises of eternal salvation for those who have been redeemed by the work of your Son, of the things which you begin, you will complete. And we We hold great confidence here this morning that as your church and as your people are gathered together to give you praise and honor and to recognize you and to give you all the glory that you would um, allow us the incredible privilege of, of talking about you here this morning. The privilege that we have each and every Sunday to gather together, to be able to sing songs which recognize you for who you are and all that you've done, to be able to open up your word and to have it Penetrate our hearts and our, our minds and our ears and open our eyes continually. God, we thank you for the gift of your word here this morning. And I pray that I would be clear as I speak and we would be attentive to the hearing and the reading of your word this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Paul opens up again here in verse 9 in this little section. Reminding them of yet another thing that Paul is going to be praying about. Uh, it seems, and this is not going to be a shock to anybody, that Paul was constantly praying. Right? We know that he was personally praying very, very often. We understand the idea of praying without ceasing, of always, of continuing in our prayers. And here, what I love about the way that the Spirit has caused Paul to write these things is quite simply that he is informing them of what it is that he is praying for. He doesn't just say generically, hey, I'm praying for you guys, and leave it there as if there's no understanding of it. Um, I understand it means a lot to many of us when someone comes to us and says, hey, I want you to know I've been praying for you. And that is an incredible encouragement, absolutely, and how often uh, we could all use more and more of that. But how much more does it mean when someone says, hey, I was praying for you, and then they explain what they were praying for. I was really praying for you a lot this week that you would have um, just the courage and boldness to stand firmly on the truth of who God is. And you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, they have no idea what happened at work this week or they have no understanding that I was really starting to shake in these things. But informing others of what it is that we're praying for, getting past the generic, okay, I'm praying for you. Or when tragedy happens, um, as we see commonly, it's, well, thoughts and prayers out there. But instead, it's a deep um, compulsion to not only pray for them, but to inform them of what it is that he is praying for. And he makes it clear in verse 9, And this I pray, in addition to what he's already mentioned, that your love may abound yet more and more and in knowledge, and in all judgment. He's making clear, he's praying that their love would abound. It would continually abound in these things. Paul was incredibly concerned with the spiritual growth of the people he cared for. Was he not um, intimately and, and entirely concerned with their development? This is seen in his preaching, in his teaching, and also in his prayers. Look over at Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, here we yet again see him discussing prayer, but he writes, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's reminding them here uh, of this incredible prayer and this this encouragement of praying for their continued development. And later on in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is an incredible Um, A life of prayer and and compulsion of prayer that Paul has for others in the church, for people that he loves, to grow, to mature and not only the knowledge of Christ, but in their faith, their trust, their love for Christ as well as for those who belong to Christ. We very, very rarely see him praying for, the physical, for physical needs of individuals or for the sense of massive church growth. We see Paul continually praying for the conditions of their heart, praying that they would be strengthened by the Spirit, praying that they would be resting more firmly upon the promises of God. Not as if these other things are unimportant, but the spiritual matters, the spiritual growth and maturity of the church was far more important to Paul than anything else. The, the difficulty here of of Paul's prayers is that it is very difficult for those on the outside to track the maturity of another person is it not um, how, how do you track the growth of a church how, how, what what metrics is it that you can use to say hey the church is growing okay well how do I know well let me see the rosters show me the attendance. That's often what people use as a marker for the growth of the church. If things are going well, then you're going to have droves and droves of people coming in, and that's how we're going to track it. There is no real marker that we have. There is no, and this is going to come as a great discomfort to some of you, there is no Excel spreadsheet we can have for spiritual maturity. And as my father hears that, he is going to cry. He said, if, it's worth, if, it's not worth, if you can't do it on a spreadsheet, it's not worth doing that's, that's, he's an accountant, so it makes some sense. Okay. We don't have good markers individually and externally to track spiritual maturity of a person. We don't have this list of, I, this person is growing in great maturity. Let's give three gold stars to say that they're at this level now. We don't have those markers, and people, we, we struggle with this. We like to be able to track, to monitor, to be able to look back and see what we've done. This is why um, there's such movements in the last... Century or so of of monitoring church attendance, of tracking numbers of well, how many salvations have you had? How many people have come to Christ because of the result of your preaching or your teaching or your ministry? And there's a sense in which numbers can be good because we're able to look at those and say, "Wow, all glory to God for what He's done." But often it's used as a sense of these are ones that I am taking onto my own account, and it's often misused. Paul here makes it very, very clear as he continues to do in each and every letter, his goal was to present mature believers to Christ. Not a bunch of those who would claim to an intellectual assent that, yes, God exists, and then leaving them. He was intimately invested in discipleship and care for the hearts of each and every person. And we see him being compelled to pray. There is something in the heart and the spirit of Paul which caused him to constantly be devoted to prayer. And here he informs them, and this I pray that your love may abound. Is not love at the very heart of biblical Christianity? Is love not one of the primary things? It's essentially this this band or this belt which ties everything else together. Love is the virtue which is surpassing all others. We can look and we can go into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This great chapter of love and we see love being tied in with, with hope. And faith, but the greatest of these is what? It's love. Any attempts at removing love from the gospel or from biblical Christianity is to take away a central aspect here. This love is the agape love, which uh, many of you understand uh, some of the different forms of love, but this is divine love. That your love may abound. This is not that you would just appreciate others more. This is not just that you would have different feelings, fuzzy warm feelings in your tummy for one another. This is divine love. This is removal from purely emotional or or sensational types of love. This is the agape love which is divine and we understand that love is from God because as 1 John tells us, God himself is love. This is the very core of of true biblical Christianity is the understanding of what love is. How many of us know someone who does not understand what love truly is? They've said the word, they say that they have it, yet are completely devoid of it. Love is something that many people claim to hold or to have exhibited, but yet is so often misunderstood. It's the idea which happens so often and I actually can proudly say I don't think I was a victim of this as a teenager. Uh, When you're 12 or 13, and you you may have your first girlfriend or the first person that you like. And, of course, at 13, um, you're in love, right? Um, Wow, he's cute, she's cute. I love this person. We've been dating for a whole week, okay? Like, it's been a week. Like, no, we're going to get married. I love them. Now, can a 13-year-old truly love? I'm not going to say that they can't. But I would say statistically, that week-long relationship is probably not true love leading to marriage. It can, but most often it is not. It is this feeling of, I really like this person, I have this weird feeling inside, I guess I love them. The amount of 13-year-olds that Brittany and I have talked to that consistently would say back and forth to each other how much they love each other is astounding to me. But we've all been around this conversation. Some of you, you're looking at your kids and going, yeah, that's my kid right now. This is it's so different when we look at these different forms of love, and this is the form of love which only comes from God. It's not based upon feelings or emotions. It is a choice based upon the intent of the one who loves, not the object who is being loved. This is the way in which God loves us. It is not because God looked upon us and said, I looked at what I've made in man and said, you guys are so Wonderful and awesome. And I, man, I'm telling you, I'm just so impressed with your obedience and how great you are to me. I love you now. His love was not a response to anything that we have done. It was purely, I am choosing with my will and my intention to love you. And that's in spite of everything that you've done, everything that we are, everything we will continue to be for a time. God has chosen, because of his divine love, to love his people. It's not because it is earned. It's not because he has these, uh, these warm fuzzies in his tummy. So then how is it that Christians can love? Romans 5 answers that question saying that the Spirit has placed love in our hearts. It is not as if a person has woken up one day and said, I'm going to choose to love everybody unconditionally. Both my best friends, the people who, lo- who I love the most, who love me the most, I'm going to show them love because they have merited this love or because they've earned my favor. I am choosing to love those that hate me, those that I really don't like most of the time. The people that we disagree with, the people that do things that we disagree with, we still choose to love them because the Spirit has placed love upon the hearts of Christians. This is the self-sacrificial love, love which would lay down life for a friend, which is evidently seen in the example of Christ. This is not a concept where... God has shown and said what love is to be and has never actually portrayed that love or shown forth that love. Many of us understand people that have these great concepts and seem to have these great virtues, these great displays of saying how much they love and they care for other people. And any time that it needs to be shown, they're not really there. They're not willing to actually follow through with these different things and say, yes, this is not a God who who talks so much about love, love being a core character um, and and attribute that he has and yet is unwilling to show love. He he shows love and and grace even upon those people who, who are enemies of God. Does he still not bestow a certain grace upon those as well? That the person who is even able to open their mouth and blaspheme against God borrows that breath from God to do so. This is the understanding of the grace that he has shown because he is a benevolent and a loving God. Which is why in our Sunday school this morning of looking at God being all-powerful, of being able to do all things, unlimited, infinite power, the great hope that comes from that because he is a good God. He is a God who is just. He is a God who is righteous. He is a God who is holy. None of us are worthy of that form of power. We wouldn't know what to do with it. In fact, I would say that we would be very, very poor in dealing with it. So the great hope is that, man, this great, wonderful, almighty God, who is all of these things, has all power in the world to do all that he pleases. And all that he pleases is, and the purpose is his own glory, and is for the good of those who love him. So we have no need to worry about what it is that God is doing with all of this power. This is not the boss who has total control, and you're saying, man, one day I might walk in, and it's going to be out of control. We know that God is perfectly in control. He is perfectly in line with his character at all times. Imagine an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who is completely lacking in love. What an incredibly terrifying thought that would be, that a God who knows all things is everywhere at all times, fully present. There is no 30% here, 70% somewhere else with all the power in the world, because he is the one who has made all things, who has given all power, and him to be devoid of love. Imagine how terrifying of a thought that would be. But yet often this is a picture that many have of God, saying, well, if God does exist, and many would say, yes, God probably does, and he has all these powers, but he's not a God that cares. He doesn't love anybody. This is often a position that many people take and that he's not involved in the affairs of man and that he is simply some tyrant, a father who doesn't want his children to be happy. This is often a view of God and how hopeless that would be. And as he instructs them in this and encourages them, this I pray that your love may abound. This abounding is overflowing in great abundance. This is, hey, the bathtub's full, but the water's still flowing. Now it's running out out of the bathroom, into the kitchen, into the living room, um, to the neighbors down that live below you. All of these situations abounding. It is overwhelming. It continues to flow. It's waves crashing upon another. That your love would abound. That it would overflow with great abundance. More and more. And knowledge... And in all judgment. This knowledge here is not just understanding of, of science or of how mathematics work or being able to read or whatever it is that we can have knowledge of in school, but this is the true, infallible knowledge of God's Word. That your love would abound more and more in the knowledge of the Word of God, in the knowledge of who God is, in His knowledge, and in all judgment, which we understand as discernment. How important is discernment in the life of anyone? Man, there are so many people with an incredible amount of knowledge, vast amounts of knowledge, yet absolutely no discernment. And you say, you, you You have to be smarter than this. Discernment is not something that is easily created, it is not something that we are naturally born with, is this incredible discernment to know which path we should take. This is referring to a higher level of theological, of moral, of spiritual perception. It implies a right application of knowledge. And is that not wisdom? Being able to properly use those things which you have learned. We see that biblical love is, it's not blind as many of us have probably heard. True love is blind, right? Love is blind. It doesn't see anything. In fact, true biblical love sees it all and says, even in spite of this, I Love. God looks upon sinful man and says, even in spite of this, I love. It's not as if he's blind to sin. In no way is our good God unaware of sin. Is he blind to sin? But he looks upon it, and he has love for his people. This love is wise, and it is judicious. And in verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent. Excellent approving those things which are good. This runs right in line with the discernment. Uh, I don't think too many of us have an issue with knowing right and wrong. Many of us understand the differences there. Even a child understands right and wrong. Uh, Benji is absolutely grieved when he does something that he knows is wrong. He is, it just tears him up inside, and, and he's really hesitant to ever do it. Uh, Maddie, on the other hand, is kind of like, I know it's wrong, but I'm doing it. Right? So I'm already getting to see contrasts and styles of my kids, which is great-ish, sort of. But here, this approving what is good isn't the difference between what is right and what is wrong. That's not uh, anything special. That's not something that is uncommon, but it is discerning between what is what is good and what is best. Something that is good, but then something that is better, or what is the most important and most crucial thing. And this is where many of us can struggle. Well, I'm looking at two things, and they're both okay, but how do I discern which is the best option? That's really where our struggles come in, not between something that is absolutely terrible and something that is good. Uh, Many of us can recognize, okay, what is sinful and what is not, but it's much, much more difficult to discern between, okay, this is okay, but how much greater is this? How much better is this? This is where the discernment and the knowledge and the wisdom comes in, and that is often learned, in many cases, through experience. Here he's encouraging them and praying that their love would abound in knowledge and in judgment and discernment, so that they can they may be able to approve those things which are excellent or what is good. This is discerning the truth from the counterfeit. This is understanding the difference between uh, what is real currency and what would be illegitimate currency it looks very similar you can look upon the two and not just say one is bad one is good but you have to actively discern by careful examination of these things which one is true and which one would be led to be the counterfeit that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of christ this is a sincere or blameless until the day of christ carries the idea and the illustration of of pottery being held to light looking for cracks to where you can look upon it, seeing if it is sincere, if it is genuine, and making sure that there are no cracks. You can't tell in the dark. You hold it to the light, and you can begin to see that there is wax that has filled the cracks of a broken pot or any broken piece of pottery here, being sincere and genuine. Verse 10 can often present some, issues, some struggles for us of approving those things which are good or approving those things which are excellent. Because oftentimes we, we can tend to make concessions on things because we say, well, I'm not, I wouldn't do it, but we approve of it for other people at times, don't we? Saying This is, this is not something that I would do, but uh, because the situation is difficult and I understand that I'm going to approve something that is not acceptable or is not okay, And we want to give approval because it helps that person in that time. How important is it to only approve those things which are good, which are excellent? These are the things that run in line with the will of God, with the character of God. Those things that we know are either godly or not. And there are so many things that go on and we can we seek to approve and how often Christians have approved those things which are not good, which are not excellent, which do not honor God at all. How quickly, because of pressure from friends or from any kind of response, individuals, even those in the church, can approve things that we know are sinful. We just give approval as if it's not important to say, well, that's them and that's not me and that's okay. You know, I, I, I don't really want to I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's okay, but I'll approve of them doing that. And these things usually take a progression. First, we begin to, to tolerate or accept the behavior or the actions or the heart conditions of another. We begin to accept it and say, well, we just need to tolerate it. in the name of love, we're going to tolerate or accept sinful behavior, sinful heart conditions, and then we begin to engage to where, well, it's all around us, and we're okay with it as long as we don't actually engage in it ourselves. And that continues to a point where now we're around it. We cannot see the difference anymore. We're not discerning. We don't see that what is going on is actually wrong. And then later on, it gets to the point where it's no longer different. We're, we're engaging in the same exact things. We have the same conditions. We have the same appearance And what I love so much here about the way that Paul is writing in this, is that he is praying that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, which means that this love is not just free-flowing. It is not just love and saying, you know, I pray that you would just have this great uh, desire just to be with other people, but it is informed by the knowledge of who God is. Why is it that you love a Christian, a fellow person in the church, why do you love anybody the way that you love them? Is it just because you talk to them and you feel good about yourself? No, but you've you've chosen to love them because of who God is. Why does a Christian love? Because he first loved us. It's not as if we have just woken up again and just said, I'm just going to love each and every person perfectly. Even to the point of sacrificing in myself, I'm going to love them no matter what. It is very difficult to do so. And I would say impossible to continually do so apart from Christ. If God is loved then if there is no God, there can be no love. This is a logical sequence of events. That you would approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense or be blameless until the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, unto the glory and praise of God. What are these fruits of righteousness? What are these fruits that come from God? We can list out in Galatians the fruit of the Spirit. We can look at all those things, and the first one is what's the first one? Love. There's a reason, it's first, it's foremost, it's central. It is the core of what a Christian does. A Christian acts out of gratitude and thanks for the love that he or she has received and thereby is going to extend that love to other people. How will people know that we are disciples of Christ? By the way that we love one another. When asked which, great, which commandment is the greatest, both answers begin with love. Loving God and loving your neighbor he's he's giving a summation of the table of the law, but also is going to be he's relaying all of this understanding of love which is so central to the gospel in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. it wasn't because he had to. God did not have to offer redemption for for sinful creatures that he had created that rebelled against him. He did not have to do so, but his character of of love and of grace and all that he is. And his will and his purpose caused him to do so. Any presentation, any understanding of the gospel that does not have the love of God, the love of Christ and the work that he did as a part of it is simply just law light. It is, hey, God did this, so now, uh, because he did something, you have to act in this way so that you can receive all of these things. This is just what you have to do. Here is your list. If you believe that this happened Now here's your list to obey. What an incredible burden that is to remove love from the gospel and how often that is. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. This is not partial. This is not you have a tiny bit of love here, a little bit of grace, a little bit of peace, a little bit of all these different things. It is to be filled, right? This language here is being filled. It is about abundance. It is things which overflow. Why? Because God is inexhaustible in the way in which He can deal with these things. Does God have a certain amount of love, and at some point all of that love is going to be exhausted? Absolutely not. How many people have lived throughout all of history, and yet He, in His love, has enough to far surpass however much would ever be sent forth? You know, we, our understanding of, of resources, of energy, of so many things is very, very limited, right? Because we do not have inexhaustible love. We do not have, um, some of you seem to at times, but we do not have inexhaustible energy. We get tired. We get worn out. There are some days we feel like our love has been absolutely exhausted and it is gone until the next day. Our our grace is absolutely exhausted and we have run out of grace. Or this one maybe will touch you a little bit differently. Patience, right? Man, I had some patience, but it's all depleted by 9 o'clock. This happens. Yet God is infinitely patient. Look at how he has dealt with people throughout all of time. The very fact that the world even continues to exist is an incredible testament to the patience and the love and the grace and the mercy of God. We look at what happened there with the flood, and people were, it was so wicked that God uh, essentially almost starts over. And we, we look at that, and we can look and say that's justified, because, well, yeah, obviously God can do that. If they were so wicked, and he is just, and he is all of these things, it, it's, it's understandable that he would do so. Uh, I'm going to think it's safe to say that people are still incredibly wicked today. I don't think that that was the only time that people were very, very wicked. What, what is keeping God from doing so? Each and every day. It is an incredible thing to understand his grace and his mercy and his love. Filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Quite simply, he is making it clear yet again that even as he prays these things for them, he shows them the source of each and everything that he is writing about, which is the person and work of Christ. It is not as if he says, I pray that your love would abound by your great desire to have love. We cannot conjure up love in and of ourselves. Of You know, I just need to love more. So I'm going to. I'm going to pull myself up and just love everybody. Great, someone's going to come up and say something you don't like. Well, there went that, right? This, this is what happens. I'm hoping I can speak honestly here. They're all by Christ Jesus. This is why any of the fruits of the Spirit, none of these things are by works that we have done in righteousness. But the incredible beauty of it is that these things are only through Christ, they cannot be generated. And it is in our weakness that He takes He exchanges our weakness for His strength. This is why the Christian can be patient, why the Christian can love, why the, the Christian can be long suffering, they can be gracious, they can be merciful, they can we can be anything that we that we are. I am so thankful that Christ has made a way for us. So he writes to them of these continual prayers, of the thankfulness that he has for others that are in Christ and the incredible encouragement that they've been as they've partnered with him in the gospel, continued in defending and approving those things of the gospel. And in verse 8, that he greatly longs for them. He feels it. He, he has this compulsion. He wants to be with other believers. And here he is in bonds, and yet he's writing. He greatly longs to be with them. And this he prays, that their love... Would abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, because how important is it that our love is informed by something that is true? People love recklessly so often that they have love and it changes from place to place to place. True biblical love is the one that comes from God and is directed by a knowledge of Him and an understanding of His will. So that we may approve those things which are excellent, being sincere. And blameless till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, under the glory and praise of God. And the end of verse eleven is the whole point of everything, isn't it? For the glory and the praise of God, not so that we can walk around and say, "Look at how much I love everybody." Um, if you if you notice, my sticker chart is full of of hearts because I am the greatest um, with love in the church, right? All of these things. The reason that we love is because He first loved us. And it is all to the glory and to the praise of God. And In Matthew 5, of the good works that we do are only done through the righteousness of Christ, and it is to magnify and to show our Father in heaven. It is not to say, look at how much I have helped and I have served and I have done all of these things, so praise me It's all to the glory and to the praise of God. And in a moment, we're going to to be reminded yet again of these things, which, which Christ has done, and as he writes there in verse eleven, which are by Jesus Christ, and which he has done in the gospel and in his sacrifice, which is the greatest display of love, in that that Christ, the perfect sinless Son of God, would ever come to this this place. It is common in conversations or in, um, in in teaching or perhaps even in just sitting under it and hearing these things, of hearing um, the truth of what Christ has done in the gospel, the the very nature of, of Christ coming and, and dwelling among men in the form of a man. And we hear and we understand that um, uh, Christ came, he died on the cross and he rose again and we can sit and we can um, kind of be stoic and our, our feelings or understanding of it as if we've, well, I've heard that all before and I know that, so what's next? You know, we can kind of tune out at times when we hear those truths. We can hear the fact that the Christ who made all things, who all things were made for him, by him, through him, who continually holds all things together, that that same Christ came and died to save sinners, and we hear that, and it's as if we have this callous understanding of, yeah, that's a little uh, repetitive. You know, we, we've heard that before. And it's something that can happen so often. As if each time we hear it, it should not have the same impact as the very first time that we ever heard it and truly understood what it meant. How, how sensitive those people of God should be to the truth of the gospel, because this is not a person in Christ who simply, well, this was just a person who lived a life, who did great things, and he died for his friends, and he was delusional, but I guess I'm thankful for that. But now you intimately have a relationship with this individual, with this person, with this Christ, this God who did what he said that he did, what was prophesied that he would do. This is not a cold understanding of something that is just repeated often and. You you can look back throughout the history of the church and wonder why is it that they would celebrate the Lord's Supper so frequently? It's because that is supposed to be a core element of what the church does, of the remembrance that's needed. The, the early church was not uh, resting back and saying, "Oh, we have to we're celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior again." You know, didn't we do that last time? Like, could you even can you imagine if you had heard those if you hear those words from someone else? Like, imagining the idea of of a person who is believing upon the gospel and who has heard it and just says, well, yeah, we kind of heard that last time. Like, God forbid the day that any of his people would hear the truth of what Christ has done and be very casual or, or callous in the way in which they heard it as if it had no actual effect for them. But so often churches can get confused with moving away from the gospel being central, the work of all the work of Christ, and begin to place it upon the work of man, of saying, hey, as a church, look what we have done. Look at what we can do. Look at all of these different things. Um, The gospel isn't enough, so we need to be, and they fill in the blank with everything else, as if the gospel needs added to. This is the truth. This is the thing which is going to change the heart's of of men and women this is what is going to change the hearts of politicians of of co-workers of family and friends it is not a hey did you know that there's all these different laws and commands that god has given it's not going to do anything for their heart how much does the gospel mean to you this morning? How much does it mean to what it is that you do? Is it something that you believe and as you hear it, you say, yes, I've known that, I've understood it, and I've heard it. What else do you have? Or is it that is all that I have? Or that is all that you need and anything else is purely a supplement that is completely unnecessary. Get it out of here. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper and this is why, as Paul writes all of this out, giving them the reason and the answer and the foundation and the basis for why their love can abound, why these things can happen, that they can improve those things that are excellent, that they can be sincere or that they can appear and they can be, have, a, have a status of being blameless until the day of Christ, that they can be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And quite simply, the answer is by Christ Jesus, by him and him alone. Anything else? Absolutely not. That is the only reason. I am so thankful that that God is a God who is loving and that we can love him because he first loved us. Because if he was waiting for us to love him first, never would happen. I'm so incredibly thankful that God is the the actor in all things. Let's pray.